Father, we thank you for bringing us together to share this last uh, lecture in this particular series. We ask you to help us to kind of pull it all together so that we might leave here with at least some idea of what uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is really all about, but more so the overall acts of the apostles. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. I'm not going to wait for what's going on out there. I'll do the best I can. Well, look at this. That's the way I feel sometimes. You know? <laughs> this is, uh, we'll talk today about the second half of Paul's letter to the Romans, which I think is really extremely important. And really, the beginning of the understanding of theology of the Catholic Church and of Christianity in general the Jewish people uh, prior to Christ really didn't have a theology. They had rules and regulations, and they felt by obeying those rules and regulations, they were honoring God, and to some degree, that is true. But there is far more to it than that. Put down the Jewish people for not understanding and for not recognizing Christ uh, when he first appeared on the scene. Uh, again, <clears throat> we can't hold the Jewish people totally accountable or put them down for not understanding uh, Jesus as he appeared on the scene. They were so wrapped up in their own ideas, their own concepts of what the Messiah would be like. In fact, as we know in, uh, I think, last Sunday's uh, gospel reading, uh, Jesus is sort of questioned and taken to task uh, because he came from Galilee, whereas they expected the Messiah to come from Bethlehem, not knowing that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and did fulfill that particular aspect of the prophecy of the Messiah. But there's so much more to it than that. Uh, and in the second paragraph of your handout today, I don't want uh, you to think that this is the only thing. Let me go back and, and read some of this here. Uh, something that we should keep in mind is the difference between the Mosaic Law of Moses and the rules and structure of the Catholic Church, comparing one with the other. The first that is the Mosaic law, uh, or laws, are binding acts that must be followed, for you are in fact offending God, and you are offending Jewish culture. For God gave these laws to the Jewish people through Moses, all right, and they obeyed them because this was all that they knew. The second, that is, the rules of the Catholic Church, which I don't like to call rules. It's the structure of what the Catholic Church believes 
And when we are offending or disobeying uh, or ignoring, as many people do, the structure of the church, then we are offending Jesus Christ directly. Because remember, as I've said many times, the church is an extension of Christ himself. You cannot say that about Judaism. Judaism was the roots of God's plan of salvation and the roots to our uh, belief system within Christianity. Uh, but the roots cannot in itself uh, produce the fruit. Judaism in itself could not fulfill God's plan of salvation. Not that there was anything wrong with that, and that's what Paul is saying here in the first half of chapter 9. <clears throat> that the Jewish people observed what they were taught and what they expected to believe, but they also carried it to their own extremes. And they were looking for a Messiah that was uh, very much like King David of uh, ten centuries later, or earlier, uh, who would free them from the Romans and restore them to uh, total sovereignty as they were at the time of David. But as you know, shortly after David's uh, death and, and Solomon's death, the whole idea of Judaism was split in two uh, by Rehoboam, uh, the next, the son of, of Solomon, because he didn't want to rule such a large uh, group of people. And so he split the thing, uh, the country in two. Judaism was a land-based or a cultural uh, thing that was always earthly, whereas Christianity is something that is mystic and heavenly, and that is why it's often difficult uh, to understand. But what I'm trying to get to is leading up to some of the things that Paul talks about uh, even before chapter 9. I want to go back to the very last part of chapter 8. This is a passage you've probably heard many, many times. But I want to put it into the proper context. It says, and I'm reading from chapter 8, uh, verse uh, 35 here. Uh, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being slain all the day long. We are uh, looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. This comes from uh, what Paul is doing here, is quoting Isaiah. Remember the prophets were God's instruments of trying to bring the people back into something that was what was originally intended. And it was the the prophets that constantly prophesied of the Messiah, the Redeemer. Going on, it says, No, in all things we count 
we uh, conquer overwhelmingly through him, that is Jesus Christ, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the only thing that can separate us from God is our own free will, which is something the Jewish people didn't understand. All right. So let's go on into chapter 9. Um, and I have a way, I think, of summarizing that at the end. Um, <clears throat> That will help you to better understand what's going on here. And I want to read this, not that I like reading uh, scripture, but I think it's important that we get the essence and every word of it. All right, beginning at chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing me witness that I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin, according to the flesh. Uh, what he's talking about is that Paul had such a great love for the Jewish people and for Judaism Remember, he persecuted Christians because he felt that they were defaming and uh, they were against Judaism. Well, that's not the case. So, so they are Israelites. They're uh, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There's the patriarch. And from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. In other words, he's talking about the roots again. <clears throat> God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Paul is so uh, taken up by love for the Jewish people that he is willing to die for them. That's kind of his way of saying that he would rather be cursed, and so forth and so on. <clears throat> but it is not that the word of God has failed, for not all who are of Israel are Israel. Now remember, he's not talking about the country of Israel. He's talking about the people and Judaism. Uh, he's not talking about the political side of the country. All right. For all are not uh, of Israel, or Israel, nor are they children of Abraham, because they are uh, his descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall bear your name. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. He's making a distinction here that the true Israelites are only those who stem from uh, 
uh, from Isaac. For this is the wording of the promise. And this is the promise that God made to Abraham way back uh, in the earlier days. It says, about this time I shall return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one husband, our father Isaac, before they had yet been born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's elective plan might continue. Remember, his elective plan, the plan of salvation, for not by works, but by his call, she was told. The older shall serve the younger. And this is talking about Rebekah again, and Jacob and Esau. The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, I love Jacob, but hated Esau. Now remember, you've got to be careful when you hear words like hated in, in this particular case. In back in ancient Judaism, uh, the word hate that we get the English from did not mean exactly the same as the English does today. It is more like something that was not appreciated or not uh, quite as up to the uh, standard or the par of what uh, Jacob was. Remember the story when Jacob and Esau were born, they were twins obviously, and Esau was the first one to be delivered and therefore he was by Jewish right the older of the two. But later in life, he sold his birthright to Jacob uh, because uh, he was too lazy to make a meal for himself. And there's a simple reason there. Uh, hard to understand for us today, but that's the, the way it was. So what then are we to say? Is there injustice on the part of God? Of course not. For it says uh, to Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will, and I will take pity on whom I will. So it depends not upon a person's will or exertion, but upon God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is why I have raised you up to show my power through you, that my name may be proclaimed throughout the earth. The whole point here is that God will choose certain people to perform certain works within his plan of salvation. That doesn't mean that he's ignoring or putting down anyone else. But God, who made all of us, is or has the authority, the willingness, the right, very important, the right, to choose and to not uh, choose or to uh, refuse. Consequently, he has mercy upon whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, well, why does he, st uh, he still find fault? For who can oppose his will? 
But who indeed are you, a human being, to talk back to God? It's one of the problems with Paul's letter to the uh, Romans, is he puts a lot of these sort of questions out. And one might say, well, why does he put all of these questions in here? As you will go through, there must be at least a dozen questions in this particular letter. And the whole idea is he wants us to think. He wants us to stop and think about what would be our answer. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can oppose his will? But who indeed are you, a uh, human being, to talk back to God? Who are you, a human being, uh, to talk back to God? No, we are to stop and think about what is God's will for all the people. Why have you created me? Or why does the potter have a right over the clay to make out the same, uh, uh, make out of the same lump of clay, that is, one vessel for a noble person, purpose, and another for an ignoble purpose? What if God, wishing to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with such patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction. Stop here for a minute. This whole idea of uh, the potter making what he wills out of the same lump of clay. This comes from the prophet uh, Jeremiah. If you read Jeremiah, the whole story goes on and on about God telling Jeremiah to go down to uh, the potter's uh, place of business and watch what he's doing. And so Jeremiah does this and he sees that the potter is taking one lump of clay and he'll make one thing out of it that might be very beautiful and very useful and then he makes another uh, item out of the same clay but it may be just so-so or uh, for a purpose that isn't uh, you know, something to be proud of. But it is the choice that's important for us to understand. God can make choices within mankind, and that is why some of us uh, who are beholden to God might be elevated to very important and prominent positions, and others uh, who are also made by God uh, are just common, ordinary people and struggling along for everyday life. That doesn't mean that one is better in the eyes of God than another. It means we are all loved by God on an equal basis, and it is up to us to use the talents that he has given us and the situation that he has given us to honor him. And he holds us accountable not so much for what where we started out from, but from where we ended up. <clears throat> and 
this is kind of a way of summarizing this part of it. This was to make known the riches of his glory uh, to the vessels of mercy which he has prepared previously for glory, namely us whom he has called not only for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. As indeed he says to Hosea, those who are not my people, that is the Gentiles, I will now call my people. And she who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. And that is what we are called today. We are the people of God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For decisively and quickly will the Lord execute sentence upon the earth. And as Isaiah predicted, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and have been made like Gomorrah, which is no more. What then shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have achieved it, and that is righteousness that comes from faith. But that Israel who pursued the law of righteousness did not attain to the law. Why not? Again, a question. Stop to think. And that is because they did not, they did it not by faith, but as it is, uh, it could, as, is, as if it could be done by works. They stumbled over the stone that caused stumbling. And it is written, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him shall be put to shame. Right. Therefore, Jesus Christ is that stone. Okay. I want to back up a little bit on this. Uh, because it's important to kind of understand. The whole section here is about Paul's love for Israel, not the country or the political power of Israel, but for Judaism in itself. Okay. And the Jewish people are put down so much today, and they shouldn't be. They should be proud. Unfortunately, they are not really the Jewish people of old Judaism. They are a culture that has a, sort of abandoned the whole idea, with a small, very small exception, the Hasidic Jews that, or the very Orthodox Jews that you find uh, primarily on the East Coast. Uh, but not even in Jerusalem do you find Jews who are really uh, into observing the laws of Moses for the sake of honoring God. It, it is more for cultural purposes 
than for religious purposes. Yes. 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 Not a new Messiah. A Messiah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but again, the whole idea is Paul's trying to express his uh, love for the Jewish people because as we go on, you will see that now he is changing his uh, attitude and promoting the Christians uh, as the final answer and the final product of God's plan of salvation. But he is not abandoning the people of Israel <coughs> or Judaism in itself. And he's saying that because we are all made by God, we are given a free will, but we must also stand, understand that God can ask us to do one thing, though it may be against our will, nevertheless, we must obey. And that only can come to us through prayer. And this idea of righteousness. Uh, have you ever heard a sermon explaining what righteousness in a biblical sense means? Anyone? Alright. We've talked about justification. And I think that's a little easier to understand. Remember the long line I drew? Slightly slanted and so forth. And at one end was uh, heaven and the other end was the opposite. Uh, righteousness can be pretty much uh, in line with justification. Justification does not mean sanctification. It leads to sanctification. And righteousness is the same thing, kind of thing. It is knowing, righteousness is knowing and accepting the fact that we are on that road uh, of justification leading to God. Alright. But it is, it is the internal belief and understanding of our wanting to get to heaven and we are striving to do the right thing. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that question is that, is that like being, staying in God's graces? Yes, it is. Another Grace is the power by which we move up that line closer to heaven. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, grace is the power that helps us move closer to heaven. And that is the whole line of justification. Yes, no. <laughs> I'm sorry? Grace that we become righteous. Yes. So that to become righteous is God's, God's grace for us to be able to understand between being right or being wrong. So yes. Justification and righteousness versus uh, righteousness 
Righteousness is the, the knowledge and the desire to get to heaven through the grace of God. Uh, <clears throat> this remnant that we're talking about this means that some people will get it and some people won't simply because they haven't tried or because of indifference. Let me digress a little bit here. Indifference is one of the largest causes of people failing to get to heaven. All right. In the book of Revelation there is a part where Jesus says to one of the churches within the seven letters that will open up the first part of the book of Revelation, he says the people who are hot are very active, knowing what they're doing within Christianity. I love the people who are cold, I despise. But the people who are indifferent are ignoring me or have no interest. I will spit them out of my mouth. And, you know, that's rather crude language. But nevertheless, what it's trying to say is those people who are indifferent have no um, right for heaven and are unfortunately heading down that hill towards hell. Yes, indifference, lukewarm. Yes. So you have to be really careful. The whole idea of our faith is a close union with Jesus Christ whereby you know what he wants for you and you follow through with it. The whole idea of just knowing something is not sufficient. We must follow through. Our, as we'll see here in a few minutes, our faith is not just something that is up here only. It has to be expressed as I say right here in your handout, it must be expressed through your speech and your actions. That doesn't mean you have to be constantly active in doing something, but you have to be constantly aware of your relationship with Jesus Christ and make sure that your actions, your actions and your speech follow through and demonstrate that. Don't be afraid to demonstrate your belief in Christ. Let me go on here. Chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God 
on their behalf, that is the Jewish people, is for salvation. I testify with regard to them that they have zeal for God, but it is not discerning. In other words, they're doing what they're told, but not really making it part of their own mind and heart. For in their unawareness of the righteousness that comes from God, and their attempt to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for the justification of everyone who has faith. In other words, well, we'll get to it in a few minutes, sir. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will go up into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the word of faith that we preach. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one who believes with the heart and so is justified, and one who confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. For scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. No one who believes in Christ Jesus will be put to shame. For there is no distinction now between Greek or Jew, Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, enriching all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, now, that's true. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. This idea of confessing on your lips and in your mind and heart is part of our commitment to Christ. But we have to follow through and show it with our speech and our actions. We cannot just say, well, I believe every word of the Bible, and so forth and so on, but that's all just me personally, and I don't want to display my faith to other people. Well, they got the wrong message then from all of those words. You have to follow through. That doesn't mean you have to be constantly active or preaching on the street corner or anything, but within your, own, within your own circumstances, your lifestyle and the talents that God has given you, you must open up and show it through your actions and your speech. Mother? I think um, reading Paul's uh, in Acts and Corinthians shows um, that uh, Paul is actually showing or describing as a person that's integer, he has the integrity to be able to to say and act on what he believes. It's a full and sound 
chapter 14, I mean uh, chapter 10 verse 14 but how can they call on him in whom they have not believed 
Remember, the Jewish people did not accept Christ because he did not fulfill the expectations that they had for who and what the Messiah was going to be about. But how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can people preach unless they are sent? And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not everyone has heeded the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed uh, what was heard from us? And thus, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Certainly they did. Their voice has gone forth to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world, another quotation. But I ask you, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, but a senseless nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah speaks boldly and says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, he says, all day long I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contentious people. Oh, I ask. I ask them, has God rejected his people? Of course not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, Isaiah says, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is God's response to Elijah? It says, I have left for myself several thousand men who have not, seven thousand men, who have not dealt or knelt to Baal, that is the God of the pagans, so also at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if by grace it is no longer because of works. Otherwise grace could no longer be grace. What then? What Israel was seeking it did not attain. But the elect attained it. That is what Israel was seeking was a king like David who would be an earthly king and get rid of the Romans. But the elect, that is the people who chose to move over into accepting Christ, attained it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of deep sleep, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. Down to this very day, David says, 
Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a tribulation for them. But their eyes grow dim so that they may not see and keep their backs bent forever. Again, this is the whole idea of the Jewish people being given so much by God over a period of 2,000 years. And then when the true Messiah appears, they choose to ignore him because he didn't fit what their expectations were. The Gentile salvation here, hence I ask, did they stumble so as to fall? Of course not. But through their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them, the Jewish people, jealous. Now, if their transgression is enrichment for the world, and if their diminished, uh, this diminishment number is enriched for the Gentiles, how much more their full number? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Change of direction. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch of dough uh, holy. We got some first fruits over here that look pretty good. Uh, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. See, this is again the image of the tree, the roots uh, being Judaism, and the tree and the fruit being Christianity. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place, and have come to share in the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. If you do not boast, consider that you do not support the root. The root supports you. Indeed, you will say, branches were broken off. And that is so. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you are there because of faith. So do not become haughty, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who fell, but God's kindness to you, provided you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off whenever he's talking Gentiles now. Provided you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And they also, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut from one by nature, a wild olive tree, and grafted, 
contrary to nature, into a cultivated one, how much more will you belong to it by nature, uh, be grafted back into your own olive tree? It's a little bit, uh, a little cumbersome here in the wording to understand, but he's talking about to the Gentiles and to those Jews who have converted to Judaism, I mean to Christianity. And he's saying that you've got to take it seriously and you've got to fulfill what you are now being asked to do. And that is honor and accept the teachings of Christ. And if you don't, you will fall back into what you were as Jews. God's irrevocable call. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not become wise or own uh, your own estimation. A hardened, a hardened has uh, come upon Israel in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in, and thus all Israel will be saved. As it is written, in other words, this is a prophecy that eventually all Jewish people will accept Christianity eventually by the end of the the world. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In respect to the gospel, there are enemies on your account. But in respect to election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. For the gifts of God, I'm sorry, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. What I want to do is stop here for a minute. This whole section of chapter 9 through 11 is really all about God's love for his creation both Jew and Gentile but we have to acknowledge that God is calling us into the Christian faith through his life, death and resurrection but we have to follow through with all of it we cannot uh, just pick and choose. We just cannot say, oh, we're, we're Catholics, we're Roman Catholics, or we are Christians. Uh, and this whole section here, if you believe in your mind and confess with your lips that Jesus is the Lord, you will be saved. Many Protestant denominations will take that statement and say that that's all you have to do is to believe and confess, and you don't have to do anything more. And regardless of what you do after a given day or time, uh, one makes no difference. You are saved. That's not a true understanding or interpretation of what these words mean. The words are correct, but we have to follow through with, with them. Again, this whole section is God's love for his creation. The next section, 12 
through 15 is mankind's response to God's call to us to be followers of him. I don't want to go through all of it uh, because you've heard so much of it before. Sacrifice of body and mind. We have to put our mind and our heart where our mouth is. That's an idea, a little statement in a way, but uh, that's what it's all about. We cannot just say we believe without demonstrating it. And we are all given different talents to do so. And therefore, we do not all have to carry the entire burden by ourselves. It says here, we are uh, many parts in one body. Christianity is the one body, the extension of Christ himself. But we are all given small parts of that. I've talked about this before. Uh, we are like a mosaic stone. And it takes all of the stones to make the picture. The remin uh, the obedience and to authority, yes, we have structure within the church, and we have to be obedient to that. And not only to that, but to lawful legal authority, we also have to be obedient. We cannot just operate totally on our own. Love fulfills the law. This is a very important thing, and this is part of what got Paul into a great deal of, of trouble. In this particular section, he is saying that love is, in the end, the final law in itself. And if we love our neighbor as ourself, then we are fulfilling all of the Mosaic law. Awareness of the end time, well, we should keep in mind that there will be an end. But the end time for each one of us individually is when we die. Not waiting for the end of the world, because we have no idea when that will be, uh, and if it will be within our lifetime. And to be concerned about that and worried about that is uh, fruitless. Okay. To live and die for Christ. Yes, we have to live for Christ and die eventually for him. Uh, I think this is rather clear. And so on and so forth. The ending, of course, is uh, a little bit of a repeat of Paul's claiming to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And it is important that we understand that. Um, but he is not giving up on the Jewish people. He is trying to convince them that Christianity is now the only way. And if we, if they all, Jews had all agreed and accepted Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Uh, we might be going 
to the synagogue next um, Friday. Uh, I think that should end it here. I'd like you to, I'd like to recommend that you re-read Paul's letter to the Romans with some of the ideas that I've presented here, because I think you'll get a different understanding of it. It is not an easy letter uh, to read on your own and to decipher on your own. It does require help and a great deal of prayer. So when you are reading scripture of any kind, ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand and to make it clear. I think we've about come to the end of our course on the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's letters, Peter and Paul's letters. Uh, I would suggest that during the summer you try to reread these with a slightly different understanding, hopefully a better understanding. And so ends our 10-week course on that particular subject. I hope you've gotten something out of it. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? What and when? Well, usually teaching during the summer is not very productive. Uh, so anything that we would do uh, would have to be done in beginning in September. Yeah. And the way it has been for the last several years is that uh, it would, we would start in uh, the middle of September somewhere and then uh, the week before Thanksgiving, which is about a 10-week span. Yeah. I, I'm not going to commit to anything, but I would like to hear what you uh, would like to study and discuss next time around. Deuteronomy? Uh, yes? That's true. We have not done the Gospel of Mark in many years. That's right. Mark's Gospel is interesting, but it is the shorter, and people constantly ask, well, where are the infancy stories, and where's this and where's that, which we know from other Gospels. But uh, Mark's Gospel has a great deal to say. Uh, yes? You and I were talking about Vatican II. Vatican II. That is something that the church should spend a great deal of time on because Vatican II is sort of a refresher course in all of Christianity. Uh, I've done a couple uh, lectures on that. One way back, uh, about 20 years, 15, 20 years ago, I did a lecture right after the church was built. And uh, it was well received because we don't hear much about Vatican II uh, from the pulpit, and it is a very important point 
in all Christianity. Vatican II ranks with uh, the Council of Trent. Remember, both of these are ecumenical councils of the Church, and Trent and Vatican II are the two most important of all of the 21 councils uh, of the Church over 2,000 years. Anyone else? I'm sorry? Early Church Fathers, that would be interesting also. Yes, and how they fit in uh, to the development of the theology of the church. Remember, Jesus did not leave any specifics. He wanted us to develop those on our own as part of uh, the extension of himself, that is, the body of the church. And so the early fathers had a great deal to do with uh, the development of the theology of the church, uh, particularly Irenaeus uh, uh, and St. Augustine, and then of course later on, not part of the church fathers, but St. Thomas Aquinas, because that was in the 13th century. Yeah, okay. Women of the Bible or women of the church? Well, women of the church would be uh, about a half hour long. Uh, uh, women of the Bible is very different and, and interesting too. Uh, but you got to remember that most of the women in the Bible, the stories, uh, such as Edith, Esther, Judith, uh, and so forth, Ruth, uh, those are stories. They are not history. They are what we would call today historical novels, where they take true history and weave a fictional story within it. Yes. And, but they have a point. Many of them have a point to make, so I'm not putting it down at all. Uh, it is interesting. Yes. Yes. Oh boy. Yes. The yeah, the popes and that would take years, I think, to do it right. I do have a, I do have a book uh, that is a brief summary of the contributions or the detriment, you might say, that uh, the popes have made to the church over the years. It's rather interesting and revealing. Uh, but because there are 246, I believe, uh, popes over uh, a 2,000 year period, it would go on and on. And I think we would all get pretty tired of it before we got to the end. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, no, offhand, I don't. I can give it to you, but I don't recall the name of it. Offhand. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Uh, again, well, I hope you gain something out of this. And it is only by living our faith that you can truly appreciate it and enjoy 
all of its many blessings. With that, let us end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you not only for today, but for the ten weeks that we have come together to understand a little better uh, the Acts of the Apostles and some of the specific letters of Peter and Paul. Because we are like the apostles in many ways, we are the disciples of Christ. We ask that you bless us and help us to understand our particular portion of this plan of salvation. We know that you have given each of us a small part to play and help us to understand what that is and how to carry it out. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.